0: Three weeks ago, I was walking to the bus stop in Morningside en route to the church office when two young women ran towards me and without any introduction whatsoever blurted out a strange question. Are you the real radio fugitive? I had no idea what they were talking about. And my blank expression must have told them so, for they rushed on their way. And as I walked down the road towards this bus stop, just a couple of yards away, thinking, what on earth is going on here? A man stopped me and he said, Hey, pal, are you the real radio fugitive? I still had no idea what was going on. And it was only later through asking a certain member of our family and checking on the internet, that I discovered what it was all about. Apparently, the real radio station on 100 and 101 FM has a competition in which they provide clues to help their listeners locate someone who is described as the real radio fugitive. Why they thought it was me, I don't know. And the instructions say as soon as you think you know where the real radio fugitive is, get out there and start asking, are you the real radio fugitive? If you don't ask, you can't win. And I looked up and the clue for that day, April the 27th, Wednesday, was, I'm on the edge at the start of the day, was in Morningside, Edinburgh. Hence the question I was asked. And no doubt the two young women and the man who accosted me, were very disappointed to learn that I wasn't the person they were seeking. For if I had been the real radio fugitive, apparently you can win up to 50,000 pounds. Someone worth meeting. Now, among the great number of professing Christians that populate our churches there are some individuals who are really worth meeting, who are worth more than their weight in gold, but they are few and far between. And now this is not a modern phenomenon. It's always been the case right from the beginning in the very first churches and Christians described in the pages of the New Testament. Over this year, we've been studying together on Sunday mornings, a little letter written by a man named Paul to a church he founded in the Greek city of Philippi. His challenge to this church, which we've taken up as our challenge for this particular year, is that they should shine like stars in the universe against the dark background of what he calls the depraved and corrupted society in which they live. But today we learn that in this church constellation there are one or two stars that shine more brightly than the rest. One or two Christians who stand out from the others. Paul describes one of them as one of a kind. He says, in fact, I have no one else like him. And he says of another that he's extremely valuable. The kind of person that should be held in the highest honour. So, who were these people? What made them different? And if I am a Christian, am I in any way like them? Or if you met me, if you really got to know me, would you be as disappointed as those who discovered I wasn't the real radio fugitive? Now that's what I want us to explore today. As we continue our series, Shining Like Stars, with a title I've borrowed, a few good men. And it will help to open your Bibles at the passage that the children read for us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to 30. It's page 1179. If you don't have a Bible, they're in the pews. Just ask someone to pass one to you and let's look at this together. Now, on a surface level, it looks as though these verses simply contain a kind of travelogue in which the writer Paul informs the Philippians of the itinerary of those who will shortly visit their city from Rome, where most people think this letter was written by Paul in prison in Rome. It's a long journey from Philippi to Rome, or Rome to Philippi. It's around 730 miles by land several days at sea in those days of travel it would have taken anything a minimum of a month probably at least two maybe three months depending on the weather and conditions and so Paul writes about these travel plans he says the first arrival they are to expect is one of their own number a man called Epaphroditus who is returning home immediately presumably he's waiting for Paul to finish writing this letter and then he will hand carry it back his fellow Christians in Philippi and Paul says he'll shortly be followed by someone else a man named Timothy as soon as I see he says how things will go with me this probably means as soon as the outcome of Paul's trial is known whichever way it goes he'll need Timothy on hand to deal with the matters that arise and Paul says hoping that this will be favourable he says I will follow as soon as I can verse 24 I'll be there soon now In those days, these kind of travel plans were often included in letters that were written. We have other letters apart from the New Testament of people who wrote these kind of letters. And they usually concluded their letters with their travel plans and then said greetings and that was the end of the letter. And some people indeed think that Philippians ought to have ended at the end of chapter 2. Now, there's no evidence for that. And while the subject of these verses contains these travel plans... I want you to see that there is much more in them than that. So just stay with me a moment as we kind of backtrack a little before we come to the subject. What have we learned so far about this letter? Well, the reason why Paul wrote this letter to the Christians in Philippi was because he was concerned about relationships within the church. There were worrying signs that the Christians in Philippi weren't getting on too well with one another. And so Paul challenges them about their behaviour. Right back in chapter 1, verse 27, he says to them, notice, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. It's a challenge to be united. And behind their behaviour, he also challenges their attitude. So we come to chapter 2. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. And instead, he says, they should, and we should if we're Christians, follow the example of Jesus. And we got that wonderful hymn, Your Attitude Should Be the Same as That of Christ Jesus. And he describes how Christ humbled himself. And so we moved on and saw that Paul then says, So continue to work out your salvation in practical living because God is at work in you to do what pleases Him. Then he says, you'll shine like stars in the universe. You'll be distinctive against a dark background. You'll shine out for Christ. Now pause for a moment. We come to verses 19 to 30. Can you imagine at this point the Christians in Philippi, and I can certainly imagine the Christians in Charlotte Chapel saying, this is all well and good. Everyone knows you ought to live like Jesus. What would Jesus do? Yeah, that's great. But really, it's, it's an impossible ideal. It's impractical to do that kind of thing. Especially if you knew the members in the church that I belong to. And so Paul mentions two men whom the Christians in Philippi actually know. Timothy and Epaphroditus by name as outstanding examples of what he is talking about, of people whose lives model what he is writing about and added to it though not stated explicitly by Paul, is his own example in his relationship to these men and the Christians in Philippi which shows that Paul actually practices what he preaches and the Bible speaks today commentary on Philippians, Alec Matea describes them as model Christians this is what he writes what Paul was inspired to imply about himself and to state concerning the other two reveals them as men who have taken the example of the Lord seriously the Lord so consecrated himself in obedient service to God that he poured himself out for the benefit of others they so consecrated themselves to God that self was subdued in the service of Christ the Lord is the Christian's model they are model Christians I like that the Lord is the Christian's model they and we if we're Christians should be model Christians so let's simply look at these three people Timothy, Epaphroditus and very briefly at the end Paul and compare and maybe maybe contrast our own attitude and behaviour and ask if we too could be described as model Christians so let's look at them together first of all Paul mentions Timothy and I want to describe Timothy as what he might call the soul mate I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment just stay with me Timothy of course had been with Paul now for about 12 years in fact Paul had invited him to join his missionary team when Paul was on his second missionary journey and he came to the town of Lystra where Timothy lived Timothy had probably become a Christian through Paul's preaching on his first journey. And now a few years later Paul comes back and he finds this young man Timothy has matured and grown in his faith and so he invites him to join the missionary team. And now, 12 years on, Timothy has been with Paul and entrusted with several important commissions to various churches. And so Paul is about to send him on another commission to Philippi. And Paul explains why he's the right man for the job. In fact, he's the only man who fits the bill. Look what he says in verse 20. He says, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. Now, the words like him are only one word in the original language, in the original Greek, and it's a very unusual word. It's only found here in the New Testament in this place. It literally means, I have no one of equal soul, S-O-U-L. with me. I have no one who shares the same passions, ambitions, concerns as Timothy. And that's why I've described him as the soulmate. What is it that they have in common? Do they love travel? Well, maybe they did like travel. They've been a lot of traveling, but not the kind of traveling you might expect. Did they just enjoy one another's company? I'm sure they did. But what essentially made them soulmates what they had in common is the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. That which Paul has just been talking about in chapter 2 and verse 5. And Paul describes two ways in which Timothy's attitude is the same as his, the same as that of Christ Jesus. The first is that Timothy was someone who focused on the needs of others. Look what he says. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare word translated genuine is genesis genesis if you like it's to do with your nature it's something natural to Timothy his concern for the Christians in Philippi is not something contrived you know something he puts on and says oh I'm a Christian I better look out for the people no it just flows naturally in fact however it flows supernaturally because when you're born again of the Spirit of God it shifts your focus from self to other people. It's a battle, of course, but it's a shift of focus. One of the hallmarks, one of the defining characteristics that helps you to determine whether a person really is a Christian or not, whether a person is a genuine Christian, whether the Spirit of God really is at work in your life, is that you will naturally begin to shift your focus from yourself to other people. And especially other Christians. You come into church, you'll be looking out for other people. Noticing who's not here this morning. I wonder where they are. I'll give them a ring when I get home, just to see if everything's okay. That person who seems a bit downhearted and didn't sing any of the hymns at all. I wonder if there's some problem there. I'll maybe just quietly drop them a card or give them a ring and just see how they are. Well, that person I see on the bulletin in the back page now, so-and-so's in hospital. I wonder, maybe I could visit or maybe just send a card. It's a kind of natural response to look out for other people. Uh, the Apostle John in his first letter really hammers this point home. Here's just one reference in 1 John 3. He says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions, he's he's really practical here, and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue but with actions and in truth. Now the fact that John had to write this shows that it wasn't exactly common practice among the churches and Christians. And Paul goes even further. Notice what he says. He says, here he is in Rome, and he says there's no one else, among all the Christians in Rome, there is no one else like Timothy who looks out for the needs of others. It's a serious situation. Look what he says in verse 21. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Alec Mateer comments again. The general run of Christians as far as Paul saw them, put themselves first and Jesus next. But it was not so with Timothy. And that's why Timothy stood out from the rest and could be described as a soul mate of Paul. Now let me as be as practical and as direct as I can be and as I usually am. If Paul were writing about the members of Charlotte Chapel, this church to which many of us belong, what proportion of us would be in the category of looking out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ? Everyone? Some? The majority? Minority? How many Timothys do we have in the congregation? Am I one of them? Doesn't follow just because I'm the pastor. Are you? That's the first characteristic, focusing on the needs of others. Here's the second reason why Paul says that Timothy is a soul mate because they share together not only focusing on the needs of others but slaving in the work of the gospel look at verse 22 it's a lovely verse he says but you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father he has served with me in the work of the gospel Paul says Timothy and I are in the same family business like a son with his father not literally of course but probably because Timothy became a Christian through the preaching of Paul But this is not the kind of family business, you know, where the son goes into the business and he never has any shop floor experience. You know, he sits in a plush office with his dad moving people around like, you know, pieces on a chessboard. No, Paul says, Timothy, serve with me. The literal word is slaved with me, like a slave in the work of the gospel. The work in which they're involved is making the good news of Jesus known to everyone. To everyone. And the very nature of this work means that if you're going to be an effective gospel witness for Christ, you need to become a slave. One who abandons his own rights for the sake of Christ. Now, Timothy certainly saw what was involved in this. When Paul first visited his town, at the end of his preaching trip, an angry mob came after him, stoned him, assumed he was dead and threw him outside the town gates. Thankfully, revived. But Timothy knew that this was what it meant to be a servant, a slave of Jesus Christ. And so Paul reminds the Christians in Timothy, in Philippi, he says, "Timothy has proved himself. He's shown his mettle in all these different situations. He's slaved alongside me in the work of the gospel, co-slaves in the service of his master Jesus Christ." Now such people are a proven and valued asset, and he is the ideal candidate to visit the Christians in Philippi on Paul's behalf. Now, the terms and conditions for a Christian have not changed over the years. Every Christian, Ben was making that point, and I'm sure he will later on, every Christian in every situation is in gospel work. And I simply say to you, it is hard work, costly work, painful work, because you abandon your rights to serve Jesus Christ. So let me ask you as I ask myself whenever I preach what is it costing me what is it costing you to serve Christ or have you opted out maybe you want as Paul says in the next chapter to know Christ and the power of his resurrection but he goes on to say and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings becoming like him in his death that's chapter 3 verse 10 what did Jesus become like in his death well, we learnt it in the great hymn that precedes these verses. He became like a servant, what it says, the way of Christ. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a slave, being made in human likeness, being found in appearances as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So again, let me be practical and direct. If you're a member of this church you will know that every five years in this church everyone technically stands down from their office be they elder, deacon, whatever position you hold in the church we all stand down we review our position and then we are reappointed or re-elected to some position within Charlotte Chapel for the next five years so let me ask you simply what are your plans if you're a member of this church? are you saying here I am I'll do anything. Wherever I'm needed, I'll serve. Whether it's got a title or not. Whether I'm up front or behind the scenes. I'm prepared to be a slave in the work of Christ. Just tell me what needs doing and I'm willing to do it. Or are you thinking, I've done my bit, now's the chance to let someone else take over. I deserve a break. It will be a relief not to have to be here every week to teach those children, count that money, steward at that door, make that coffee, attend that meeting. Now understand the attraction of that. Why? Because it's hard work. But I simply say, are you a Timothy? Or are such people rarer than the real radio fugitive? They're certainly more valuable than him in any church. So that's why Paul plans to send Timothy, his most valued asset in his ministry, as his representative for the church in Philippi for they are soulmates who share the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, focusing on the needs of others, becoming a slave in the work of the gospel but Timothy cannot leave immediately Paul needs him to wait for the outcome of the trial, whatever it is instead Paul plans to send someone immediately, a man called Epaphroditus, and I've called him the risk taker And again, I'll explain in a moment what I mean by that. Of all the churches that Paul planted in the Mediterranean world, only the church at Philippi supported him financially. We learn that later in chapter 4 when we come to it, God willing. And when the Christians in Philippi heard the news that Paul had been arrested and carted off to Rome and was on trial for his life, they decided to do something about it. They decided to send him some money to help him a practical gift. And along with it, they decided to send someone who would be a help to Paul and look after him in prison. In those days, there were no amenities provided when you were in prison. But relatives or friends would bring in food or clothing and any other necessities. If you didn't have any friends, you got no food and eventually you starved. And even if you had friends, they might not want to take the risk of visiting a man on trial for his life Against Caesar. But the Philippian Christians weren't worried about such things. Instead, they determined to send this gift to Paul, and again we'll come to it in chapter 4, verse 18, along with a person who could carry it, who would visit him regularly, minister to his needs. And so they chose one of their own members, a man called Epaphroditus. Paul reminds them of why they chose him. If you look at verse 25, he says, He's your messenger. The original word there is apostolos, the word from which we get apostle. But here it simply means someone sent on a mission. He also says, he's your minister. Literally, a minister of my needs. It's a word used of a priest in a temple or a public servant in the community. Now, unlike Timothy, we know nothing about Epaphroditus except what's found in this letter. He is named Epaphroditus after the Roman goddess for love. Aphrodite probably came from that kind of Greek religious background before he became a Christian Uh, the name means charming lovely amiable and it suited him well and the task to which he was assigned by his church also suited him well for we learn that Epaphroditus was not the kind of guy who settled for a comfortable life look at verse 30 again which is an interesting and key verse he says about Epaphroditus He almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life. Risking his life. Now again, it's an interesting word, and again, it's the only time this word is found in the New Testament. It probably comes from a verb that means to stake everything on the throw of a dice. In other words, to risk everything in a particular cause. So what was it that Epaphroditus was prepared to risk? Well, notice the first risk he took, which was to his physical health, his sickness. Somewhere on the journey to Rome, this long journey to Rome, probably on the journey rather than when he arrived, though it may have been when he arrived, Epaphroditus took ill, seriously ill, almost at death's door. He almost died, writes Paul in verse 27. Now, when that kind of thing happens, you could think the temptation would have been to turn around and go back home, or at least to stop there and wait. But Epaphroditus was determined to fulfil his commission, no matter what the cost. Even if it cost him his life, he said, I'm sticking with this, I'm going to finish what I've been called to do. As it turned out, he was restored to health, verse 27. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, But God had mercy on him and not on him only but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Again, as with the illness itself, we have no details of how he recovered. But whatever means, it was attributed to God's mercy alone. This is still the case today when people are healed, whether directly from God, naturally through the body's healing processes or medically through the skill of doctors and nurses. God is the author of life and death. What is important to see is that Epaphroditus thought it was a risk worth taking. His life for the sake of Christ. Why? Because he's following in the footsteps of Christ who became obedient unto death. In fact, the words to death are the same words used of Jesus earlier in that hymn that we looked at. Very interesting history that follows on from this about this word that's used here. It's a long Greek word which I won't bore you with which describes people who are called risk takers. It became a kind of title of certain people in the early centuries of the church. Uh, William Barclay in his commentary writes, these risk takers, they were called in the church, the gamblers. In Charlotte Chapel we have elders, deacons, pastors. We don't have gamblers yet anyway, but after the sermon we might, when I explain what I mean by it, it doesn't mean gambling with dice, but risking your life. But he writes, it was the aim of these people to visit the prisoners and the sick especially those ill with dangerous and infectious diseases. In 252 AD, plague broke out in the city of Carthage. The people threw the bodies of their dead out in the streets and fled in terror. The Christian bishop, Cyprian by name, gathered his congregation together and put them to work burying the dead, nursing the sick in that plague-stricken city and by so doing, at the risk of their lives, They save the city from destruction and desolation. Then he writes, In all Christians, there should be an almost reckless courage which makes them ready to gamble with their lives to serve Christ and other people. Now you may say, because we like comfortable lives, don't we? Is that a justifiable risk? Only if you believe the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Only if you believe with Paul that for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's a win-win situation. It's worth the risk. Sometimes think we're very comfortable. We don't really like risky living. But Epaphroditus was prepared to take a risk to his physical health. Notice another risk that he took, which I've only spotted this week as I thought and meditated on it. He also took a risk to his emotional health, his sensitivity. Somewhere, perhaps when it he, he probably happened like this, Epaphroditus, on the journey to Rome, took sick, very ill. He decided to go on with the journey, but someone was going in the opposite direction and he sent a message to the church in Philippi to tell them about the situation. Or maybe this person just saw him really ill and got back to Philippi and said, hey, you know that guy Epaphroditus you sent? He he's really ill. He, he's nearly dying. In fact, by the time by this time he may even be dead. And Epaphroditus hears that they've heard about it and he's desperately worried and upset for them. It's very interesting what he says in verse twenty six. He says, For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. The word longs is a word of deep desire. An emotionally deep relationship. The word distress it's only used elsewhere in the Gospel accounts of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, his emotional state as he faced the cross and he was distressed. See, Epaphroditus, I think, was one of those very sensitive people who feels for what other people feel and is distressed when other people are hurting and are the Christ-like trait. And I simply want to say to you this morning, while there is often a physical cost in serving Christ, there is also an emotional cost if you take the risk of involving yourselves with people on any level, in any depth. If, like Timothy, you take a genuine interest in the welfare of others, it's sometimes a painful business because you suffer with other people, especially in a big church like this. There are always people in a church of this size who are suffering deeply, and we need to bear one another's burdens. Now the only way you'll avoid this risk is to avoid getting involved in any depth with anybody else. Just stay in that superficial relationship. How are you this morning? Fine. How are you? Fine. Good to see you. See you next Sunday. Goodbye. But if you get involved with people, it hurts. It's painful. And Epaphroditus was that kind of man. And yet he took that risk of involvement. And yet Paul realizes there is a limit to what people can take sometimes. And so he decides it's best that Epaphroditus goes back home. However, notice again Paul's sensitivity towards Epaphroditus. He's anxious that when he gets back, he's not greeted as a failure. And so he commends Epaphroditus. He says, he's my brother. We're bound together in the deepest of relationships in Christ. He's my fellow worker. He's worked with me in the work of the Gospel. He's my fellow soldier. He's a comrade at arms who's fought side by side with me against the forces of evil. And Epaphroditus, he says, he's fulfilled his commission. Give him a hero's welcome when he gets back. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honour men like him. You know, sometimes wounded Christian soldiers with physical and emotional scars return home and are greeted in their churches by a deafening silence. A lack of understanding. And I simply want to say, there should be a place in our churches for honouring men like Epaphroditus and women who have served the Lord faithfully and suffered for the gospel. I wonder if you and I are among them. So here we have Timothy the soulmate, Epaphroditus the risk taker. Finally, very briefly, because we'll come to it later in our series, behind the scenes there is Paul, the role model. And looking at these two men together, it's easy to overlook the author of this letter. But Paul is not writing a novel. He's writing a story of which he's an actor, a part, playing a part. And in it you see very clearly his of practice is a man who practices what he preaches. He himself is following Jesus. Notice, very briefly, his characteristics. First of all, his humanity. In that hymn in chapter 2, the beginning there, we read that the Lord Jesus Christ became a man, a real human being. And Paul is still a man. He's a real human being. He's not just a stoic colossus who evangelises the whole world. He's a man with deep feelings. who experiences a range of human emotions, from joy, he hopes to be cheered when he receives news about the Philippians, to the prospect, he says, of sorrow upon sorrow if Epaphroditus had died. Notice his humility. Just as Jesus humbled himself by becoming a slave, Paul humbles himself in all of his plans. He's looking out for the interests of others. you think Paul wanted to let Timothy go? And Epaphroditus, nobody saw that it was best for the Christians in Philippi. And notice his obedience. Just as Jesus became obedient to death, so Paul is prepared for that as well. He hopes, he believes that he will be freed, but he recognises that this is in the Lord's hands. Not his. He writes, I hope in the Lord, I'm confident in the Lord. He is one who is following Christ. He is a role model. So he can write in the next chapter words that I think many of us would be embarrassed to write or say to anyone else, follow me. Join with others in following my example, brothers. Take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you, Chapter three verse seventeen. He practices what he preaches. He's a good role model. am I are you? almost finished. Let's just review what we thought about. Let me ask you some questions. One, am I a soul mate? someone who works with others heart and soul in the work of the gospel is that what I'm really committed to am I a risk taker prepared to put my life on the line my money on the line my health on the line am I a role model could you say to younger Christians look you want to know how, what it's like to be a Christian just follow me okay stay with me in fact you know follow me whatever I do you just do the same kind of thing not just on Sunday, but throughout the week as well. And maybe the final question is, if you say no to all of those, ask the question, am I really a disciple of Jesus? Have I really put my trust in Him? Is His Spirit at work within me, changing me, transforming me, making me more like this? Am I really a disciple of Jesus? If so, then I want to be among not just a few, these few people like that. It would be great in our churches if most people were like Timothy, Paphroditus, Paul. only happens if we're committed to it. We're willing to do that. I'm going to pray.